DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, an inside look at Bangladesh's notorious Special Operations Battalion. I took part in extrajudicial killing, torture, investigation, but I was not a part of abductions or enforced disappearances. But I heard about many, and I met officers who were part of that. And the people who were fighting to find out if the battalion killed their family members. I still couldn't find him. What is happening with him? So I will, till my last breath, whatever happens, I'll fight for that. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we have a long listen for you from DW's investigative team. It's about Bangladesh's notorious Special Operations Unit, the Rapid Action Battalion, also known as RAB. RAB was founded in the aftermath of 9-11, when the United States and its allies began allocating vast resources to the global fight against terror. For years, the U.S. and other Western countries played an important role in training and equipping the force, despite being aware of widespread human rights violations. It would take until 2018 for the U.S. to halt funding and until 2021 to impose sanctions. Now, for the first time ever— Two insiders from the elite force are claiming RAB has committed human rights abuses, systematically and with the explicit backing from the highest levels of government. This report is by Naomi Conrad, Chris Kaula, Arafatul Islam, and Bogita Schulke. For this story, DW teamed up with Netra News. A warning to listeners, this story contains graphic descriptions of murder and torture. Brace yourself. I'm going to play an audio recording that is incredibly difficult to listen to. But I think you should, because it's important. It was recorded in 2018, and a whistleblower told us that it shows that an elite force in Bangladesh, at least initially trained and equipped by Western powers, is committing murder and then covering it up. Approved, in some cases, by the government. This is a story about the victims and their families, but it's also a story about the perpetrators and how, maybe, they could be stopped. So, I suggest you hear me out. That woman desperately praying for someone to pick up? She's trying to reach her husband, Ekramal Haq. Hello? He's been missing for hours, summoned from his home late at night by what DW has learned are members of Bangladesh security forces. She doesn't know it yet, but he's been taken to a nondescript grassy spot by the side of Marine Drive, an 80-kilometre-long road in southern Bangladesh, which cuts through paddy fields on the one side and a wide sandy beach on the other. We're still not sure how the call connected, but we can safely say that his captors on the other end most likely didn't realise that they had a witness to the crime they were about to commit and that their victim's wife was recording the call on her phone. The recording continues for another ten agonising minutes. This is what plays out next. Men shout orders, more shots are fired. At times it's hard to make out what's being said. 
We hear instructions to place yaba, that's meth, mixed with caffeine on the body. In essence, to cover up the execution by making it look like a shootout between drug dealers and security forces. It's chilling. I feel conflicted about broadcasting the last moments of someone's life. But his wife agreed, and we have another source. This audio is direct evidence of how an operation is staged. It's essentially a staged performance. This man is one of two whistleblowers. Both are military officers. Both say they served as commanders in the elite squad in recent years. Both witnessed executions. From my experience of conducting operations in RAB, I could relate that the audio tape that was shared by Akramal Haq's wife is about an operation conducted by RAB, and the audio tape can be trusted. RAB, that's the Rapid Action Battalion, the force we've been talking about. We'll get back to the two men and Akramal Haq's execution in a moment, but you'll need a bit of context to understand what comes next. RAB was set up in 2004 and is made up of members of Bangladesh's police and military. Originally, it was supposed to be called the Rapid Action Team, but then people realised the abbreviation RAT might set them up for ridicule. Not exactly the best name for a special ops team. It's more than 13,000 members are dressed in black from head to toe. Black uniforms, black caps, even black face masks. Since its inception, RAB has been accused of widespread human rights violations. Activists have been keeping track. They say hundreds of people have been killed and abducted by RAB, never to return. When its members arrive, usually in the dark of night, it's like death has come knocking on your door, one man told me. You'll be hearing reference to two terms from now on, extrajudicial killing and enforced disappearance. The first refers to a killing by an official without any due process, hence extrajudicial. Enforced disappearance means that a person is picked up and literally disappears, sometimes for days, sometimes years, in some cases forever. So, back to the whistleblowers. I took part in extrajudicial killing, torture, investigation, but I was not a part of abductions or enforced disappearances. But I heard about many, and I met officers who were part of that. I served in many battalions, and the things that I have seen during my tenure include killing criminals, taking bribes, and then members going to extort people. Experiencing a person dying in front of you, a person asking for mercy, and the last, last few moments of his life. This is very disturbing, watching someone die. We know a lot about these two men. We've spent hours talking to them, cross-checking and corroborating their confessions and deployment history. But we can't reveal too much about them, or even use their real voices. Because if we did, they would probably end up dead. You might wonder why they're willing to risk so much. I did. One of them said he's haunted by what he did, of what happened to so many people like Aisha Begum, the woman you heard in the recording, first pleading for her husband's life, then screaming. Night is yet to turn into dawn as we meander through Teknaf, a small city close to the border with Myanmar. For once, the cacophony that during the day swells to a roar wherever you go in Bangladesh has died down. The small shops that line the roads are shuttered up. 
were trying to reach Aisha Begum's house without being noticed. We know she's under surveillance, that she's being watched, her phone calls may be monitored, even though it's been five years since her husband was killed. She's a slight woman, dressed in a black shawl, gloves, even a black face mask. She takes us to a small room. The plaster's peeling from the ceiling, several window panes are cracked or missing, vines are sneaking into the room. A glass cabinet is stuffed full of school books, plastic trinkets and pencil sharpeners. Someone scribbled on the faded walls okay, with a black pen. Some of the things she's written on the wall. The thing is, I hate rap second. And then I want justice for my dad. Why a human being shoot at another human being? That's written in Bengali. Manush, manush ke guli so why should a human being kill another human being? Yeah. Yeah, why do they kill innocent people? It's been a year, Abu. Mm -hmm. I need you, Abu. Abu, that's the man you heard being murdered in that yeah. chilling phone call. A man, his wife says, who would drop whatever he was doing if either of his two young daughters needed him. He was not, she says, over and over again. The drug dealer Rab made him out to be. That's why at first they were not concerned when a local military intelligence officer summoned him for a late-night meeting. The man, she says, had been calling him continuously throughout the day, insisting he make the time. He was not involved in anything, and he often met with people met with Rab, met with the police at the police station. He trusted them that they wouldn't do anything to him. Throughout the interview, the sun slowly fills the Spartan room. Her husband's mud-splattered glasses lie on a rickety plastic chair next to hers. She speaks quickly. Words spill out of her as if any second now will be discovered. I couldn't do anything for him after he died. If I couldn't show justice by filing a case, it would give me some comfort that I've been able to do something for him. She says every time Ekram Hack's family talked to a lawyer to file a case, RAB officers would show up outside their office. The intimidation worked. No one was prepared to take on the case. The family tried a few times, but they were threatened. That's why they didn't go forward with the case. They said that we've already lost one of our own. These people could do anything to us if we file a case. They could even fake a road accident. But we do have an official record of Rab's version of events, a copy of a police report concluded in 2021. In this telling, Rab officers got a secret tip-off of a drug deal. When they arrived, the criminals started firing. All of the drug dealers managed to escape, apart from one who got killed in the crossfire, Ekram Huck. That's the official version then, an armed gang of drug dealers who, conveniently, disappeared without a trace, never to be found. There's no mention of the audio recording. His wife still doesn't know why he was killed or why Rab would target a member of the ruling party. But what we do know, and this is why we went into this in so much detail, is that the execution, no, the whole operation, most likely followed certain procedures. Rab's playbook, if you will. Each operation is carefully planned, sometimes for months. The target's every move analysed and monitored, our sources say. 
A profile of a target would comprise the personal details, along with details about family members and relatives, and in addition to that, the target's educational background, involvement in business or occupation, etc., would be included. Another important thing they focus on a lot is that all the orders, plans, or documents, any kind of bureaucratic work related to the execution, would never be shared in any official channel. This is done in a totally secure manner. It could be via WhatsApp or some other encrypted app. Anything put in writing would always follow legal procedures. Other than that, everything else is communicated verbally. Verbally, so as not to leave a paper trail that would conclusively prove what they did. And that's why the audio of Ekremel Hack's murder is so important, because it corroborates what our sources are telling us. Remember the shots, the orders, the drugs placed on the body? After the target is brought out of the car and taken to a specific place, he's first made to stand and then kneel down in such a way that his capacity to move is severely restricted. Before the first shot is taken targeting a specific part of his body, he's kept blindfolded. Here, some basic principles are followed. The shot is fired from a certain distance so that the muzzle flash of that gun leaves no mark on that target's clothing or his skin. In order to speed up the process of bleeding, they usually target the chest or the heart. One day I timed it with my watch. It takes at least 20 minutes. At least 20 minutes. For 20 minutes, there is the sound of groaning. Then, slowly, it stops. After a lot of digging, we managed to get hold of Ekremel Hack's post-mortem report. It states that he died from hemorrhaging and mentions three PWS, that's piercing wounds, in the chest and four in the back. So, back to that grim, deadly playbook. Again, this is what the sources say. While the target is left to die, RAB officers get to work messing with the crime scene. They do whatever is needed to make it look like a crossfire has taken place in that spot. For example, planting a weapon in the individual's hand. It is worth noting here that at least one bullet is fired from that weapon, which would show up in any eventual forensic analysis of the weapon. And if you closely analyze the weapons that have been retrieved so far after the operations, since the establishment of RAB, you will notice that all of them are similar. Usually these arms are smuggled from neighboring countries. Most of them are 9mm weapons. If this is a drug-related case, then some drugs are planted, either in his pocket or inside the bag he's carrying. Again, we don't have any evidence to conclusively prove any of this, because Rab has been very good at covering its traces. But there is another thing the sources told us about, and in this case we were able to find corroborating evidence. We trawled through data that activists have been collecting of reported killings which shows that the last third of each month is the deadliest in Bangladesh. That is because the RAB units with the most operations receive rewards, our two sources say. After counting everything at the end of the month, every battalion gets points. The battalion that gets most of the points is declared the winner. Unit captains have their own calculations regarding the operations they carry out throughout the month, and they keep their eyes on the other competing units and their operations. In the last part of the month, they play their trump cards. Usually, operations like extrajudicial killings, anti-militancy raids, enforced disappearances, etc. would happen more frequently during this time. 
so that in a very short period of time, the commanders can increase their points by conducting these operations and defeat their competing battalions. A killing competition, if you will. So, a quick recap. We've heard from the two whistleblowers how Rab operates, how it first kills, and then covers up the murder. And to corroborate what they say, we have the audio, the post-mortem report, and data analysis. This leaves two big questions. How can they get away with it? And who is calling the shots? Before we get into that, though, let me first tell you a little bit about Bangladesh's two main political parties, the BNP and the Awami League. The Awami League is in power now under the leadership of Sheikh Hasina. She's in her 70s and has been in power on and off for almost 20 years. The engagement decision on any political target would come at least from the Ministry of Home Affairs or the Home Minister would give that order. And without the approval of the Prime Minister, it's very unlikely that the Home Minister would give an order like this. I think for political extrajudicial killings, it comes from the Home Ministry. You actually only accept orders from the Home Ministry. So the Ministry should have informed the Home Minister. Just to be clear, we can't conclusively prove this because, again, we don't have any corroborating documents. There's a reason why Rab doesn't send memos about their plans. But we do have some clues. For one, we know that Rab has systematically targeted political opponents, especially in the run-up to the last two elections in 2014 and 2018, which kept Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina and her Awami League in power. Hundreds of people disappeared. A trendy cafe in central Dhaka, Bangladesh's capital. On the ground floor of an office block, People are sipping expensive cappuccinos while working on laptops. Outside, cars are stuck in one of Dhaka's ubiquitous traffic jams. It seemed like a good place to sidle up to a vehicle should anyone be watching us. Waiting inside is a smiling, stylish woman, Sanjida Islam Tuli. She's here to sneak us into her family's home in a grey tower block in one of Dhaka's more upmarket neighbourhoods. Thank you. We quickly make our way to a large rooftop. Below, Dhaka dissolves into the hazy, polluted horizon. <laughs> Dozens of people are patiently waiting for us on rows of plastic chairs, mostly women, some older men, several children, clutching often faded photos of husbands, fathers and sons. Most of the men in the pictures have not been seen in over a decade. A few have turned up dead. Many were local BNP activists, that's the opposition party we talked about earlier, and their relatives say they were picked up in the run-up to the elections in 2014, some in 2018. Without prompting, they start telling their story, taking turns brandishing the photos. Take, for example, a young teenager with a black scarf. I want my father. My father didn't commit any crime. Why has he been abducted? I want to get my father back. When she sits down again, she stares into the distance. Sanjida acts as the spokesperson for the group. They often get together to hold rallies or meet with foreign delegations, hoping to pressure the government to do something. In Sanjida's case, it was her older brother who disappeared. 
The last time she saw him, on a cold December night in 2013, she gave him a warm hoodie, she says, and urged him to leave Dhaka. He was hiding, afraid that he too might be picked up. He was soon to be proved right. That kills me that I couldn't do anything. I still couldn't find him. What is happening with him? So I will, till my last breath, whatever happens, I'll fight for that. For the rest of the interview, Sanjida sniffs, switching between anger and grief. Uh, each day, each night, actually, we are passing with the hope that someday my brother also will come back. But also passing the time with unbearable pain, what he is facing. We put a question to our whistleblowers. I have to admit, I was close to tears when I heard what they had to say. You can call it a message through this interview that those who are waiting for their family to return, if it's actually a year or two ago that they disappeared, then there is a less than 1% chance that they will really return in the future. No organization, especially RAB, would want to keep someone somewhere in its battalion for years. It's actually not possible. It's not possible. I think the percentage of their survival and their return is 0.001%. It's not just that we're eliminating someone. We're actually putting the whole family and person related to that person in danger and traumatizing them for the rest of their life. We're just sitting down to a delicious home-cooked meal after the interview when Sanjida tells us that several men, some in uniform, have shown up outside the house. Like many activists, Sanjida has CCTV cameras and people in the neighbourhood are on the lookout for her. It's then that I start recording again. OK, let's go. And any problem? Sure, if they ask you, hmm? I will not take the big car now. So let us take the small car, mm -hmm. then we'll go. So can you do that? Like First, you, your black car goes out and then <laughs> after two minutes, we'll go with the and small one. We managed to make a getaway in time to meet one last source in a nondescript hotel room in Dhaka where, we hoped, no one would see us. Enter Nafis Mohammed Alam, a young, self-assured man dressed in a stylish, probably expensive blue suit. On the 3rd of November 2021, when he had just returned from dinner, pizza and chips, with his girlfriend, Rab stormed his house. This is his version of the events. First, he says, they beat him, and then they invited the media to his house. Almarite thore thore shajano bideshi nana brander mod bad jaini almare rupore rongsho amun ki khaten nicher This is a news report from the evening showing both officers in rab uniforms and nafis. The camera zooms into rows and rows of bottles of alcohol that he says rab planted in his house to prove he was running an illegal liquor delivery business. Once the media left, he says he was bundled into an unmarked van and taken to Rab 1, 
a large building just off the road to the airport. Then, and again this is what he says happened, he was taken to a room on a lower floor at the back of the building, hidden from view from the main road. We checked. You can't get a clear view. And inside the room there was another room. That room had four to five uh, cells with doors of iron that had gaps. Every cell had a length and wide of seven by three. The toilet was inside the cell and every cell had a specific camera pointed specifically to that cell. Like for every cell there was particular cameras. I was getting horrified, like what kind of place is this? These rooms are usually soundproof, and from the outside, it is difficult to realize that such rooms exist. And these rooms are not only secured from outsiders, but also from insiders. So a security zone is created centering these rooms so that the general RAB members cannot get close to them. And then there's the interrogation room. It has thicker walls than any other room, usually. The walls of the room are made of concrete. To make it soundproof, some elements, like thick black cloth especially made for this, are used on the walls, ceilings, and floors. Even the doors are soundproof. I could saw that uh, this is a very well-organized and managed torture room. Like, there all the handcuffs are hanging in the wall. There are lots of, like, baseball bat and lots of things to beat, beat people up. Lots of things that you could see in movies in, that are used to torture people. I thought only terrorists are like tortured in this way. So. Nafa says he also saw sophisticated spying equipment. Like they like asked me that, do you have any idea that what we are capable of? Then they just uh, opened the device. You know, it was a very big laptop, like a laptop planted on a device. So they showed, like, they turned it and showed me that every WhatsApp contact, every WhatsApp chat I made is visible in, in that device. Nafis was eventually handed over to the police and transferred to a regular jail, as his court documents show. It was here, on the 10th of December 2021, that he says he heard the news that the United States had sanctioned RAB. People in the jail and, the, like, the prisoners were like shouting with joy. Everyone out there is so happy. I know and everyone knows that RAB is out of control. And even though you cannot say anything against them in Bangladesh, the other countries in the world are like, they are concerned that these things are going on. While the US sanctions have had some impact, extrajudicial killings have gone down, and rather than disappearing, People are getting abducted and then presented to a judge with fake charges, human rights activists say. But the sanctions only target RAB and seven individual high-ranking members, former and current RAB director generals and additional director generals. Not the man who allegedly tortured Nafis, Mohammed Alam. None of the people we believe were directly involved in Ekramul Haq's murder. After his execution, two men were moved to RAB headquarters and one military intelligence officer got a lucrative posting as a UN peacekeeper in Africa. The alleged torturer, full we know, is still at RAB. All these men have, literally, until now, got away with murder and torture.
And that brings us back to where we started, a murder and a quest to prove that it was not just one isolated, shocking event, but rather one of many, that someone high up in the political leadership is seemingly signing off on. So what happens next? Rab is still dangerous. Rab should be stopped, whatever it takes. If we don't stop it now, then the existence of humanity will be in question in a country like Bangladesh. Only, how do you stop Rab? Well, that's up to others to decide. All I can say is that telling, and you listening to this story, is a first step. Even if it feels like such a painfully small one, given what people like Aisha Begum, Sanjida Islam Tuli, and so many others are going through. Neither the Home Ministry nor the Prime Minister's office responded to a detailed list of the accusations levelled against them in this story. In a written response, a spokesman for RAB said it was a matter of deep regret that we are unable to reply and referred us to the Home Ministry. For DW, this Naomi Conrad, reporting a story by Chris Kaula, Arafatul Islam, Begitta Shulka, Netra News, and several others who, for security reasons, cannot be named. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To find out more about today's story, visit our website, dw.com, or go to DW Documentary on YouTube. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, check out our website or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at dw.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tektmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Jürgen Kuhn. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.